Lebanon has entered its fourth week of a popular uprising that seeks to dislodge the current ruling class. The protesters aim to oust the corrupt political parties that have held power since the end of the Lebanese Civil War and to replace the confessional electoral and legal system with a civil state. So far, the protests have been successful at forcing the resignation of the prime minister and gaining major concessions, but the protesters claim they will not stop until the rest of their immediate demands are met. They are demanding the creation of an emergency minimal government led by technocrats with no previous party affiliations. And those are the opening words of a piece called Uprising and Lebanon Aims to Replace Entire Political System, published on November 13th in With Sober Senses, the online journal of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Its author is Jade Saab, and Jade Saab is our guest today on Radio Free Humanity. On today's podcast, we talk with Jade Saab for the hour in a fascinating conversation about the exciting events on the ground in Lebanon, the political, economic, and ideological backdrop to this movement, and its future prospects. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or join in the conversation, please do visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. That's also a good place to leave a donation to the podcast. You can find Radio Free Humanity on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and all those other places. So please do subscribe, rate the podcast, and come by the Marxist Humanist Initiative website and leave us a comment. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the positions and views of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, we will talk about Lebanon with Jade Saab. But first, Andrew and I take a few moments, as we do in every podcast, to discuss some topics and recent news. Today in the current events section of the podcast, we're going to be talking about a speech made by Sasha Baron Cohen to the Anti-Defamation League on November 21st, a speech that has gone viral. If you haven't listened to it yet or read the text, it's worth the time. In the speech, Cohen, yes, that's Cohen of uh, Borat and Ali G fame, gave an impassioned indictment of the, what he calls the Silicon Six, the six people in the world who, quote, determine what the world sees, as he put it. These are Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Sundar Pichai of Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin of Google's parent company, Alphabet, Susan Wojcicki of YouTube, and Jack Dorsey of Twitter. Challenging the idea that regulating these companies would mean an attack on free speech, Cohen argues that they have become the biggest propaganda machine in history and that they do not have a right to spread lies, foment violence, even genocide in some cases, and to undermine liberal democracy all in the pursuit of profit. In one of the most quoted lines from the speech, he says, quote, If you pay them, Facebook will run any political ad you want, even if it's a lie, and they'll even help you micro-target those lies to their users for maximum effect. Under this twisted logic, if Facebook were around in the 1930s, it would have allowed Hitler to post 30-second ads on his solution to the Jewish problem. One of the most important themes coming out of the speech, I thought, was his very fervent defense of truth and the idea that there are such things as facts and we have a right to be protected from fake news, from lies, uh, and so forth, which is very difficult because... It's been shown that, that lies are more viral, lies spread faster and wider 
than um, a- actual information. They're more engaging. And the algorithms of the, the big tech companies are, are such, the algorithms are such as to promote engagement by any means possible. So he says, look, they need, they need to regulate, but they're not going to regulate because they're profit-making companies. He called these folks high-tech robber barons. They, they could regulate what they allow. They're not going to because it's expensive. So he says, look, if they're not going to do it, then, you know, we, we have to, society has to exert control over them, uh, even to the point he gets to near the end of his uh, talk, even to the point of jailing people who allow election interference uh, and, and genocide. Yeah, I thought it was a great speech, and I'm glad it's getting some attention. You know, there's nothing particularly new about what he's saying. I mean, a lot of people have been saying these things, but it's nice that that, that someone's taking a public stand like this. Um, I think one of the most important things he talked about was just to take on this notion that regulating social media would be some attack on free speech, and to clearly distinguish between free speech and massive propaganda. Um, there's a big difference between the way lies and hate speech and misinformation spread on social media. On the one hand, on the other hand, like people sitting down at a coffee shop to express their opinion or to protest or write op-eds. They're, they're, not, the, they're not the same types of speech. Uh, you know, I, w- I was thinking about just what you were saying right before the, the podcast, the way that we relate with one another versus the way that we relate with one another by means of social media. It's very striking. Okay, and it's what goes on in social media is completely dysfunctional because it goes against millions of years of human evolution. Yeah, <laughs> right. People have noted this in, in a variety of ways. For instance, that the, the trolls are able to be uh, prominent and to dominate here and there and everywhere in the small. What, 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 what's so troubling to me is that this all arose from out of nowhere by means of some really unthought through libertarian sensibility of, of people in Silicon Valley or whatever that was really just uh, an excuse to make a lot of money and have a lot of economic power. And what has happened is, without any discussion, much less, you know, real deliberation and laws and so forth, all of this has been allowed to happen. This proliferation and dominance of communications and information by social media all been allowed to happen without any real forethought, without any uh, anybody actually agreeing to it. You know, clicking like on these platforms that they control with their algorithms is not agreement. Okay, we got to get that kind of idea out of our heads. But all of this just happened without any real process, any real deliberation, and it has fundamentally changed our lives and, and really put us under great threat. And I, I think what is really required and I think Baron Cohen's uh, speech goes to this issue very directly, is we, we, we have to protect ourselves and humanity, and we have to protect our, our well-being against these things and these people who are facilitating these things. I mean, you're right, Brendan, that he's not the first to say any of this, right? But what's striking to me is that, as against five years ago, this saying this kind of thing is now acceptable. It's listened to. You know, it's part of the discourse. Five years ago, people would just say, oh, you know, you're against free speech or, you know, 
know, okay, boomer, or you know, whatever they whatever they would say. People just kind of viewed it as this is the way things are now, and we have to learn to live with it. And there's nothing that could be done. And a few years before that, there were all the promises of how wonderful uh, the internet and social media would make everything and bring everybody together, right? And it's gone exactly the opposite way. So. I think we've got a really clear instance here of how not deliberating, uh, not bringing things under social control really hurts us. The whole, I mean, if the USSR is a test case for, you know, a certain vision of what called itself socialism and it collapsed and it's an historic failure, this is the biggest historic failure the the social media is, biggest historical failure of, of libertarianism ever. And it really has, has has brought us to the brink in the United States. We're we're months away of no longer being a liberal democracy. I mean, maybe maybe weeks when when the Senate votes to uh, let Trump and his people off the hook. This was facilitated by the by by these people. That was another thing I thought was very good is that he didn't give in to this kind of very libertarian distinction between you know the people who pull the trigger versus the people who sell them the guns. You know, that's a metaphor, right? But the, 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 the people who are, you know, promote the genocide online, engage in the election interference, recruit for hate groups, they're the ones pulling the trigger. But the ones who are allowing this are, are the people who, who give them platforms with, with, you know, no oversight at all, really. I also appreciated that Cohen's piece directly confronts uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gives these companies legal cover for, which means basically they are not liable for anything that's posted on their sites. So as opposed to like in real life, if I had like, you know, sex traffickers operating out of my basement and I was like fomenting a race war in my backyard with Nazis, I could be legally responsible for that. But if that happens on Facebook, they have no liability legally for any of that activity. And that's because this law says that they are not publishers of this information. It's posted by other people. And so they, because they're not considered publishers, they have no responsibility. This thing about them, them not being publishers, that, yeah, that, that's a big problem. But I think it only goes to some of the problem. And, and another part of the problem has, has to be uh, addressed is just the, the ability to exploit basically everybody by preying on emotions by getting people to uh, react instantly without thought. All of their stuff is, is designed to do that. We're able to think, but they're able to very efficiently do, I guess, what can be done. I mean, it's not everything, but do do what they can to bypass any ability that we have to think before we react. Well, we'll have to leave it there because that's all the time we have on this episode to talk about current events. Up next, our interview with Jade Saab about the protests in Lebanon. Jade Saab is a Lebanese and Canadian writer based in Scotland. He is working toward a PhD at the University of Glasgow on the topic of ideology and the process of socialist revolution. He keeps an active blog at jadesaab.com. That's J-A-D-E-S-A-A-B.com. Jade, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, we, we started the podcast by reading out a couple paragraphs of your piece from November 13th, and now we're re- make it, doing this recording on November 26th. 
So I guess my first question is, you know, events on the ground are moving fast in Lebanon. Is there anything that we need to update from those opening paragraphs? Not drastically. I mean, the the only qualifier I'd add to that is today is day 41, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, so a, a fair bit of time has, has elapsed. And, uh, and I think that's worth noting just because the the ability to maintain this momentum is really something worth high praise. It certainly does seem remarkable. Well, let's start at the beginning because I'm going to guess that a lot of our listeners might not be intimately familiar with the details on the ground there. So what initially touched off this most recent protest movement? So one of the, um, I'm going to say the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was a suggested uh tax on voice over internet protocol, I believe is the right uh, um, terminology. Uh, So pretty much any kind of app on your phone that you can use to place a call over the internet. Um, It it was dubbed the WhatsApp tax in Lebanon. And Mm. uh, people use these VoIP services to kind of escape from really high uh, phone fees. Lebanon has one of the one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, phone charges, mobile phone charges in the world. Hmm. Uh, so this was seen as a as a last straw. Before this event, uh, before the tax was announced, there were uh, major wildfires uh, in Lebanon, and um, there's supposed to be an emergency plan set in place by the government, as well as um, some infrastructure, including uh, helicopters and planes to help with firefights, uh, you know, to, to, to actually put out any, any forest fires because Lebanon is, is quite a green space or, mm-hmm. or, you know, becoming less and less so. And then while these fires were happening, even though in the Lebanese budget, in the government's budget, there was a budget for the maintenance of these vehicles. These vehicles were nowhere to be found. And it kind of just very blatantly uh, showed the corruption in the the level of uh, inefficiency amongst the government. And after those fires... They, you know, the first thing they did is is launch more taxes. So, so that kind of really rocked the situation. Uh, mm-hmm. It's worth noting before that, once the budget was announced, it, it was a full austerity budget with hiring freezes, salary freezes, um, increased uh, taxation, and that had already started a series of smaller and and not overly coordinated. Uh, strikes and protest actions. So this can all be seen as the immediate buildup to uh, the breakout of protests. And can you give us the context behind these austerity measures? So the context behind that is, is Lebanon is a is a highly indebted uh, nation. I think it's third worldwide as a percentage of GDP. Um, one of the conditions on which further loans were agreed to be given to Lebanon, uh, which is referred to as the Seder Agreement, and this is a continuation uh, of uh, loan structures uh, facilitated by the French government due to previous close relationships between uh, our former uh, prime minister uh, after the civil war and up until 2005, Uh, and the French government, which was a series of loans given across three three installments, this being the fourth, uh, that 
that dictate that Lebanon needs to find efficiencies, I'm just going to use that terminology, um, within its its government. And uh, a lot of people on the ground in Lebanon agree with the need to not find efficiencies in the sense of cutting services or what little services are there or uh, gutting public institutions, but rather as getting rid of the corruption. And obviously, as, as long as the current ruling class remains in power, uh, they're going to go for the latter and not, you know, dish out the money out of their own pockets. And when you say corruption... Uh, do yes. you mean uh, bribery, diversion of funds, let's say for firefighting equipment into private pockets? What what are we talking about? Yeah, so so it it happens on on all levels. So from your uh, basic getting uh, paperwork done at any any municipal institution or government institution to the wholesale um, siphoning of public funds towards uh, political pockets. Um, and to, to really understand how this works, uh, we'll need to go into uh, a bit more the, the government structure and the confessional system itself and how it's developed over time. Uh, whether I'm not sure if you'd want to do that right now or, or you'd rather get into that later on. Well, maybe you could explain to people who don't know what a confessional system is, which is probably most people, what, right. what you mean by a confessional system. Uh, so on the, on the most basic level, a confessional system can be described as a way of institutionalized uh, sectarianism within the government. Um, so what that means in practice is that seats within parliament are, are uh, allocated towards specific sects within that make up Lebanon's population. You mean religious sects? Yes, religious sects. So, yeah. so uh, different confessions, uh, different religious groups. Uh, some of them cross the boundaries between religious groups and ethnic groups. Uh, for example, uh, the Armenian population in Lebanon has an allocated number of seats in, uh, in parliament, and they're both kind of considered as a, uh, an ethnic group as well as their own religious constituency. So every seat in parliament and the number of seats in parliament are, are divided up. Uh, based on uh, these confessional lines, these religious lines. Uh, and then this is translated as well into the uh, major political positions. So our president needs to be a Maronite Christian. Our prime minister needs to be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of the house needs to be a Shia Muslim. Uh, and then there are reserved positions as well for other religious minorities. So that that is institutionalized through our uh, constitution and through later on the Taif Agreement, which was the agreement that ended the Lebanese Civil War, as well as an informal, what is spoken to as an informal national pact, kind of a, a gentleman's agreement, if you will, a handshake agreement over um, these, these positions and allocations. So in terms of the origins of the confessional system, is it designed to guarantee equality between these different ethnic and religious groups, or was it designed to sort of maintain um, the dominance of some groups over others? No, so it's, it's the exact opposite. So it, it's, it was meant to, because Lebanon is very pluralistic, um, it was meant to ensure that no minority is dominated over by another. 
and I use the term minority here, is because it is so pluralistic. Every sect is, in essence, a minority. So, so that's what, although its origins can be traced back to colonial times and to, to the Ottoman Empire as a way to, uh, you know, divide and conquer, to speak in very simplistic terms, and, and maintain the dominance of the Ottoman Empire, as well as uh, various colonial interests uh, once uh, Lebanon became a uh, French protectorate after the uh, First World War. So why are protesters calling for an end to this confessional system, and how does it relate to these austerity measures that they're protesting against? So obviously, you know, not everything pans out as intended, and even though this confessional system was intended to maintain a sense of uh, cohesion within the, the nation, what ended up happening since the independence of Lebanon in '43, and there are several instances across Lebanon's history up until now that has led to this is instead of maintaining the plurality, what ended up happening is every sect within, uh, plurality was lost within sects themselves. So every religious sect now has their uh, quote-unquote confessional uh, leader. In Arabic, it's called uh, Za'im, which is also a term borrowed from uh, the Ottoman Empire. And, and this person ha has become seen almost as the the godfather, the uh, you know the ultimate authority of what this uh, what the political stance of this sect is. And because of this power sharing dynamic, it has really moved away from anything remotely political to a system of divvying up a, uh, a cake, you know, the, the economic cake of who gets what in terms of, uh, in terms of both uh, the ability to govern, so what is every party and every sect allowed to govern, and how can they best use that to, for their own personal gains, for the, their, their own party and religious gains. Uh, which happens through corruption. The way that ties to this, uh, to these protests, is that it's just reached to a point where we're now on the verge of uh, of economic collapse, and um, the the idea that it's one or another sect's fault has kind of completely been erased. So the main uh, problem or the main culprit of all of this is now seen as the system itself, as opposed to the uh, to the parties within the system. You know, with a system like this, I would think that it would be very easy for economic problems to result in uh, increasing antagonism between different sects and uh, increasing sectarian violence. But instead, it seems like you're saying that this popular movement has taken a progressive form of being, being opposed to this sectarian structure rather than falling into sectarian violence. Why do you think the movement has taken this progressive uh, form rather than a reactionary one? Well, I think it's because we've already passed through these trials in Lebanon's history, with especially with the 15-year civil war from 1975 until 1990, uh, where that was the rhetoric that was tried. It is the same parties and the same uh, party leaders that fought the civil war that are still in power, that are still trying to blame each other for the, the faults of the country. And the people have, have kind of just, you know, 
had enough of this game, uh, for this rhetoric of, oh, it's this party or if it's this other party, and and now understand that this is a systemic problem and, and it's the system itself that needs to be removed and changed. This is not to say that everyone is on board, uh, and, and this is not to say either that there are reactionary elements within this movement and that there is a worry that as this movement continues uh, to, to grow or dissipate and the economic situation worsen, that more space for these reactionary elements uh, will be created. Yeah, you talk about reactionary elements in the uh, in the movement. What exactly do you mean by reactionary here? But more broadly, what are the major ideological currents? You know, who who's fighting for what, and and is there a difference between, let's say, the leadership uh, and the mass movement in terms of the ideological makeup? So it, it's it's a very interesting space right now. Ever since the end of the Lebanese civil war, the space for politics uh, as we would refer to it here, uh, you know, as either Marxists or, or you know, uh, people living in more liberal societies or, or democratic societies ha has been stifled, um, completely suppressed. So even uh, the labor movement in Lebanon has, has kind of completely been broken up. Uh, so there has been no space for pol political conversations, whatever politics is now being seen, I'd argue, is in a pre-political stage. And, and to get to that and to get to the various parts of the movement and, and especially the counter-revolutionary uh, or counter-revolutionaries, uh, I just want to take a step back and go through a bit of history, uh, well, the current history with Lebanon and how this movement came to be and who the and how the leadership came to be the leadership. So sure. Yeah. In, in 2015, Lebanon went into uh, what was dubbed as a garbage crisis. Uh, garbage collection and disposal in Lebanon was privatized to one company, which is, um, you know, very close to the one of the governing parties. Uh, in 2005, their lease on a landfill, which is the which is one of the largest landfills in Lebanon, uh, ended and the government had no plan on what to do. So literally garbage collection in the entire country stopped. So garbage just started piling up in the street. No one was collecting it. No one was, was taking it anyway, uh, anywhere. So it was a horrible ecological and health disaster. Out of that incident, a movement called the Youth Stink Movement uh, started with their aim of uh, getting rid of the Minister of the Environment. Uh, before all of this, uh, we had also had a political crisis where the president of Lebanon refused to go on for another term. And we were at a political impasse. All these different political parties that have been around since the Civil War did not have anyone to... Uh, recommend to become president and over nine years extended their term as ministers in government, which is wholly unconstitutional. And this was one of the reasons why this garbage crisis happened is because you essentially had an ineffectual government, not that it was very effective before that, um, 
But, you know, these things kind of started bubbling and eventually exploded with this garbage crisis. And the first, what was known as civil movement, which is a movement that is not politically affiliated to anyone, that is drawn on from the general population, uh, with, you know, what we would call here a social movement. Um, in Lebanon, it was given the term civil movement just to draw on that distinction between the traditional uh, party politics because nothing existed before then. Uh, so soon after the 2015 garbage events, uh, finally, uh, elections were announced. There were first municipal elections. So these, uh, the same members of the civil movement started organizing election campaigns in different uh, municipalities. And then finally, for national elections. Now, in both instances, they lost. But what happened is the entire rhetoric started to shift away from the traditional politicians who, who very openly associated with each other and partnered with each other to make sure that members of the civil movement do not win in elections, so to actively suppress uh, this civil movement. So this is, these are kind of the, uh, the social or I ideological faults, if you want, that have launched us uh, into, this, uh, into this crisis, into this current uprising. So what has happened is you have these um, vague pre-political bodies which have tried their luck through electoral policies uh, and through um, also street mobilizations and protests, uh, but yet don't have a uh, comprehensive, if you want, ideological component. What that essentially means as well is that the implicit ideology within them is a neoliberal capitalistic ideology because that's just the dominant ideology worldwide. And you would say that that's shared by both the, the leadership uh, of the rebellion and the, the, the masses who are participating in it? So the, the ideology and the politics in this uprising needs to see be seen as a negative politics, is not as here is what we want, but rather here is what we don't want. And what we don't want is corruption. What we don't want is uh, poverty. What we don't want is, is, you know, every time it rains, there are floods in the streets and we can't get to work. So, so that's kind of where the politics is at this stage. There has been a lot of discussion as well around um, expansions to social care, especially um, access to, to hospitals and, and, and medicine. Um, so there has been these, these discussions, but they have not yet materialized, I'd say, in any sort of uh, platform, party, or, or things like that. Now, a lot of detractors of this uprising have been saying that this is problematic. Um, I, I wouldn't take that stance. I'd say, I'd say that potentially opening that up to political discourses and ideological debates now will, what we say in Arabic, divide the street, so kind of break the movement uh, prematurely before the initial goals of, uh, of getting rid of the government is met. You seem to be indicating that like within the mass movement, there are a lot of concrete demands for change, mm -hmm. whereas within the leadership, there's sort of just tacitly an acceptance of 
what you called neoliberalism and the, the idea that if they are to succeed in replacing the current political system, the current political leadership, they're still going to have uh, essentially the same orientation to the economy. Am I getting that right? Yes, but there's a there's a main difference here that I would that I would say is that the rhetoric there is that with the corruption gone, the the reliance of uh, austerity measures, for example, will will not be will no longer be necessary. That the only reason the current ruling class is leaning on austerity is because they don't want to foot the bill, is because they don't want to lose out on the money they're making through staying in power. In, in you know the corruption racket that they have going on, so the the rhetoric behind the leadership of the revolution, and, and uh, I hope we can talk about that a bit more, is um, is that well once we get rid of this ruling class, we put in this uh, this smaller government of technocrats, we're we're not going to have we're not going to have a problem finding the money to pay our dues, to stabilize the economy, to cover, uh, you know, maybe a, a broader uh, social safety net for the people most hit by, by this economic crisis. I have a question about this demand of the movement for a technocratic government. Is this just like the only way people can imagine something outside of the confessional system? Would these technocrats be elected? Um, is why not just demand like a popularly elected government or something like that? Yeah, so so it's it's interesting, and here's here's one of the strange things about this uprising is that even though it is built on the notion that the entirety of the system and the ruling class are completely ineffectual, the upper and the reason I call it an uprising is that it still defines itself through these institutional processes. Uh, they still want to get rid of the government through governmental means. So it's, it's a bit contradictory and paradoxical. Uh, what that means in, in, in practice to install a technocratic government, so to speak, is it is the government, it's the president's job as per the Lebanese constitution uh, to put together a new government and government in Lebanon means ministers of the various ministries. So, you know, minister of finance, minister uh, of uh, tourism, environment, etc. Um, so what the demand is, is the it's expected now from the president to put in place a smaller government uh, ministers that do not belong to any of the current parties. So again, here we're leaning on this idea of a negative demand. It, there is the only demand is that we do not want them to be connected to the current ruling class. But again, paradoxically, paradoxically they're expecting the current ruling class to to do this to 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 guillotine themselves if this is a you know if this works as a metaphor. Well, it's, it's interesting. So it doesn't go as far as just. Um, you know, popularly elected government ministers or something like that. So how does this constitute a end of the confessional system, as you refer to it? Yeah, so, so that so their primary demand right now is this constitution of a smaller, um, smaller government with, um, with legislative abilities. And what they want from this smaller uh, 
a technocratic government is to first have the ability to pass laws that would put an end to the economic crisis. And the second is to launch early parliamentary elections outside the confessional system. So essentially a new electoral law. So, Jade, in your piece, you have some interesting things to say about the limitations of these kind of demands and actually ending the confessional system. You talk about how there are other institutions in society which still perpetuate these kind of confessionally arranged power systems outside of just the government. Can you go into that? What I was hinting at there is is because this ruling class, because these people have been in power for for so long in, in they've really seeped into every facet of of Lebanon. So most banks are owned by either directly by politicians or their extended family or relatives, etc. Most universities are owned uh, by the same people. So so it is we're talking about a ruling class in in every sense of the world uh, of the world, you know, so so proliferated within the state and uh, within what we what we would otherwise call civil society, uh, that that it's you know we are talking to use Gramscian terms a historical block that has cemented itself over decades. Um, you know, can can a simple uh, overturn you know adding a new government and uh, and creating a new electoral law and then going back to an an electoral strategy be enough to topple this is is a point of doubt that's been expressed by myself and many other leftists as well in Lebanon. Uh, Are we not just going to end up in in the same situation? These people have unlimited resources. Their fingers are in every institution. Uh, Traditionally, they've been the ones able to mobilize the most when it has come to elections. And this is something that differentiates Lebanon from other countries in the region is that, you know, Lebanon, as dysfunctional as the dem- democracy is, is still a democracy, as opposed to maybe Egypt and Tunisia, where where you had one uh, power structure and one figurehead that you were trying to get rid of. In Lebanon, you have you know, eight or 12 of them that have embedded themselves so deeply and that are able to play people off of each other to cement their position in power. I would like to turn to the military here, which is uh, historically important, I mean, in Lebanon, but also when it comes to any revolution or potential revolution you have to keep your eye on the military you know what are they trying to do here so i guess my first question given the deep traditional religious divisions within lebanon where does the military stand in relationship to that kind of situation you know religious divisions is the army the military capable of acting as a united force and if it is, then what has the relationship of the military to the rebellion been thus far? Uh, you talk about that in your article, but I'm also interested in where is that likely to go? How, how is the uh, military likely to orient itself? And 
my ultimate question is really, does the military have any skin in the game itself here? Does it have any aims with respect to the situation and, and, and the revolution? It, yeah, the, the, the army, the military is a really interesting one in Lebanon. So to, to your first question about Lebanon being very uh, religiously divided, I just want to point out to something to Lebanon is institutionally religiously divided. That does not necessarily translate into the people being religiously divided. Uh, most polls actually show that people are in a support in support of a secular state, and that's one of the reasons why this uprising has been able to 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 keep its momentum so far. It's just that there has been a a barrier uh, of, of oppression and a fear to come out and, and speak that we, we see ourselves as Lebanese and not as people belonging to one sect uh, or another. And just to expand on this point and the idea of, of a confessional system, one of the byproducts of a confessional system means that there is no um, unified civil law in Lebanon, that whenever it comes to uh, to civil law, you know, we're talking about um, divorces, uh, inheritance, uh, marriage, um, uh, rights around children, uh, that is all actually dealt with religious courts in Lebanon that are sustained by the government uh, who, who, you know, implement whatever form of justice they see as, as, as just and, you know, as defined by religious scripture. So I just wanted to clarify that around um, religious divides in the country as being more institutional than social. I mean, obviously, they also have social implications, but it's not, uh, by far, it's not the, the main social uh, point of conversation, let's say. Um, going back to the army, uh, the army has historically been seen as a neutral institution and has necessarily had to be that um, because it does bring in people from various social backgrounds. And, and it's, it's seen so much as a neutral institution that every time there is a conflict or a political crisis in terms of who should be president, as that's usually chosen by uh, uh, elected officials by the parliament itself, the the commander of the army is seen as the consensus candidate. So the last three presidents of Lebanon, including the the current one, was a previous uh, army commander. So that's how it's seen. Now, um, in terms of their role in the in the current uprising, um, within two or three days of the uprising. The army came out with a statement that uh, they will be neutral in this. They will preserve the uh, the right for protesters to protest, and will defend them against any uh, any action um, that you know any any kind of violence. And uh, during the day they released that statement, a uh, a motorcade uh, of motorcycles was heading towards the main protest site in the capital, and the army did actually intervene and, and disperse uh, people coming to antagonize protesters. And this was seen by the protesters as a great win. I'm not. I, I'm not so hopeful of this. I mean, the army 
no matter how neutral it claims it, it to be, it is still a state apparatus. Um, and it's by it protecting protesters, it's doing the bare minimum of its job. But also the army has been involved in uh, clearing demonstrators from the streets and uh, reopening roadblocks, uh, not, uh, you know, definitely not at any stage close to, let's say, what, what happened in Egypt with the army uh, of, of, you know, sheer force and, and, uh, and oppression and violence. So yeah, that, that's kind of where, where the army is. And, and due, due to its weak internal state, the army has not been able to engage in, in previous uh, conflicts of civil strife. Uh, strife. So for example, in, uh, in 2007 in Lebanon, there was uh, well, what I like to call a, a mini civil war, but there was essentially an armed conflict that broke out over uh, about a week and a half, different... Uh, political factions, it was armed, it was violent, and, and the army was unable to mobilize and to stop this. Uh, that was definitely a negative at, at that point because there was loss of life. Uh, in this point, that same army, that the same weakness of the army and its ability to mobilize has meant that it has not been able to oppress protesters and oppress this uprising in a way that, uh, that other countries have uh, been able to do with impunity. Let's imagine that the rebellion is close at some point to success uh, and the confessional power sharing system is likely to be replaced. And, you know, it might go in this technocratic direction. There might be all kinds of ideas uh, at the time of what to replace it with. Where are the interests of the people who dominate the, the military where are they likely to go or are they just going to say we're neutral and we'll continue to be neutral? Yeah, I, that's how I see it. So so I wouldn't look at the army as an overly politically active uh, player. Uh, I think a lot of people tend to try when they think of army and uprising, especially in the Middle East, they think of either Syria and Egypt, where in Syria you had the uh, complete splintering of the army, and where in Egypt, due to the history of the army there and, and the coups that happened earlier, it's seen as a major political player. Uh, here, the army will not interfere to kind of set up a transitional state. It will try to uphold any kind of state institutions, even if the... Uh, even if the institutions themselves uh, change and, and the uprising is successful in, in, uh, in transcending these, uh, the, the sectarian system altogether. So I don't see them playing a major role after that. They will, they will remain their neutrality in the sense that we will defend the rights of protesters, etc. The only difference here would be is that the protesters after the uh, hypothetical success of this uprising are themselves much better organized, disciplined, and armed. So it is a completely different dynamic with who is currently in power uh, being transferred to a position of opposition after the success of this uprising. So, so that is a completely different dynamic. 
um, to touch on the role of what the how the army might be used now, a big uh, one thing that I see potentially happening is um, if counter revolution uh, intensifies uh, and it has been intensifying over the past two years. There's been uh, sorry the past two days. Uh, there has been increasing violence and confrontation. The current government uh, might come out and say paternalistically, in, for us to defend the protesters, we are making protests now illegal and creating a state of emergency or something of that sort. And in which case, the army will continue to to be a state apparatus. So I want to be clear here that their their definition of uh, their stance of neutrality is not that they have they now see themselves as outside of the state and outside of their protesters as kind of a neutral third party, but just that they will do their role in defending protesters and upholding you know, Lebanese law. So so even the terminology of neutrality is a bit misleading. Um, so yeah, so that that's where I see the army potentially helping put out this uprising, is that if counter-revolutionary forces, which are part of, but also outside of the government, uh, and I'm and I'm speaking specifically here of parties like Hezbollah and, and Amal, who, who which are uh, armed, uh, very disciplined, uh, have their own ideological uh, visions um, ex- that exist also outside of the current Lebanese power structure. You know, using their violence towards protesters, and then the state coming in and saying, "For your own good." Uh, we need to stop this, declare a state of emergency, and that that'll be the end of it. You you think it would it would just fold at that point? Well, I I don't think the uh, I don't think the movement has the I don't think the uprising itself will have the the energy and the momentum to to face the army at this stage. And that's because principally this tradition and and belief that the that the army is neutral. Uh, it, it's it's. Based on principally the uh, you know the the ideology within the uprising itself that we are not opposed to government institutions we are just opposed to the the method of governing so uh, they will not put themselves in a position where they are in opposition to um, specifically the Lebanese army and there is a there's a big I'm not sure how exactly to put this into words but. It's kind of a moral, a moral stance that recourse to violence is seen as something they, the ruling class and the members of the ruling class do. And therefore, we will not sully the, the uprising by, by resorting to those means or to uh, attacking or speaking even uh, ill of the, of the army. So, so right now, the uprising sees the army as an ally, as its protector, and as a, as a key institution that needs to be protected. You mentioned reactionary elements with, within the, the, the rebellion. What, what do you mean by that, and, and who are they? Yeah, so I, I'd break down the, the, the movement into, into several uh, or, or the let's say the the players of this into several different factions. 
so within the uprising itself, within the, the popular movement, you'd have these, uh, what has been come to, to be referred to as the civil movement. And this can be seen as the thought leadership of the uprising, right? They're setting the pace of this, uh, not directly, uh, but they're they're setting the the rhetoric and the um, the overarching principles of what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable within this uprising. Um, under that, you have the popular movement itself, which is quite diverse. Um, you have a working class contingent, which is left leaning fighting for things. There's already been talk of things like nationalizing banks, uh, increased social care. You know, these are regular people directly uh, worried about their, you know, the, their material well-being, you know, being employed, um, get, having access to jobs, having access to medicine, having access to education, um, fighting against the idea that, you uh, most Lebanese leave Lebanon for, for jobs and opportunities outside. So, so there's that. And then you also have reactionary elements to that, mostly nationalistic elements that, uh, you know, want to see uh, Lebanese independence and as an extension of that, um, see the Syrian refugee presence in Lebanon as uh, detractory and, and want to uh, kick Syrian refugees back to Lebanon, uh, that type of thing. So, so it is a bit of a, um, well, kind of just a lot of, a lot of different thoughts that I, I will again say are pre-political. They're not well-defined or well-explained or, or well, um, yeah, they don't belong to a platform or, or a distinctive current within the overarching movement. One of the defining things of this uprising has been uh, what have been dubbed um, kind of debate tents. So these are tents that have been set up in public squares where public uh, lectures, teachings, and conversations are being had to kind of figure figure all of this out. I mean, this has the 40 days that we've seen, the 41 days, things have been happen, happening so quickly without any political preconceptions that people are very much figuring it out as it, as it goes. Um, now, on the other side, on the counter-revolutionary side, uh, you have the the government that's uh, created of these various uh, political and sectarian parties and out with that you also have uh, specific parties such as Hezbollah and Amal who already operate in a sort of uh, uh, dual power and, and have been legit uh, legitimized by the Lebanese state and their legitimacy depends on the existence of the Lebanese state as is but who, with the with the uh, potential destruction of the state as is, or the success of the uprising, will maintain their current network of dual power and can become, uh, you know, reactionary main players within uh, the Lebanese uh, Lebanese politics 
especially if that transition is not smooth, uh, is not successful quickly, which I worry it might not be, because I think the the hope that uh, that the current thought leadership of the uprising has that, okay, once we, we deal with corruption, we can then fix all of these socioeconomic problems in Lebanon uh, is, is a bit kind of overambitious. So, so essentially, my warning here is that this uprising cannot meet its intended aims of, of satisfying, uh, you know, the the overall dissatisfaction with with, uh, you know, living conditions. If they only see a political solution to this, which is the replacement of the uh, confessional system with a a civil uh, with a civil system, that that there is a uh, an underlying capitalistic system that has maintained these people in power, and that the essentially this uprising needs to expand its scope into the various uh, institutions as well as the capitalist system itself to uh, to remove these people effectively f- from power. Because even if if um, you know by name they are no longer part of the political process, which is a, a stretch. Uh, it's a stretch to go to uh, by simply thinking that if we now uh, put in place a non-confessional electoral law, uh, that these people are just going to disappear. Uh, is that no? They they can still reappear because they're they're so deeply embedded in the material relations of the country. I, I like to have a better sense of the social composition. Uh, of the movement and of the leadership. Who are these people? Working class, middle class, professionals in the leadership and, and maybe if you can separate the, the leadership from the mass movement, I'd like to get a sense of who are these people both in the leadership and, and, and in the mass movement. What I would say, uh, the people pushing the, the thought leadership are uh, – are professionals. They they are either have been working for NGOs for a long time, uh, are activists who are also you know professionals and and have decent. Uh, you know this also depends on on what you want to define as as working class. So I, I think maybe a better terminology would be here is is their middle class. Uh, you know working class, but but quite comfortable professional. Uh, you know, petit bourgeoisie type of uh, of mentality, and that's where the the underlying and implicit ideology of their leadership comes from, uh, and, and why they're focusing a lot more on negative demands than any kind of positive uh, positive political uh, demand. So that that's the leadership, but uh, but the reason why the the mass movement has been able to uh, coalesce around them uh, is because you know they, they share the same issues, you know, anti-corruption, um, restructuring of, of the government uh, outside of confessional lines. Um, so, so they, they, you know, they are representative to to a large extent. Um, but I also expect that after and should this uprising uh, happen, there will be a. a in creation of the space for more working class uh, proletarian uh, ideologies to take form and to take shape. 
uh, in Lebanon doesn't. So the mass movement is 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 essentially largely I shouldn't say essentially but largely proletarian. I would say so. Yes. Right. And and how um, how industrialized is, is is Lebanon? I mean, is there a large agricultural population still, or is it mostly people you know in urban areas? And, and, and so it's it's very urban. Uh, and not industrialized. And this goes back to kind of the rentier economy that has been, um, you know, developed by, by the, by the political class itself. So it's urban, but not industrialized. Um, what do people work? Yeah, so, so the largest employing sector in Lebanon, it's the public sector. Uh, I believe followed by it is the banking sector. Right. Okay. Uh, so, so it is very service oriented. You have a large uh, uh, food industry, uh, uh, tourism industry. Uh, th- these are all big, big, uh, big industries. Right. So, so the, the the mass movement is is largely proletarian. People working in service and low level positions in finance and 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 the government. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. And if the first stage of this revolution succeeds, you're uh, hypothesizing, I think, quite correctly that uh, the professionals will say, bye, we got what we want, uh, you know, now we're taking control. What are the prospects for, you know, a second revolution, for second negativity, for the, the, the masses forging an independent direction um, at that point or before that point, if they start to see what's coming? I'll, I'll, I'll take that a, a step back. There, there, are two, there are two kind of directions in which um, I worry this will go or, or may go uh, or not. You know, this, this is all conjectured. So, so uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, as the financial crisis worsens, and it will worsen, uh, we've we've seen the syndicate of, uh, of hospitals come out and say uh, current medical supplies will run out within uh, two months. We've seen the syndicate of banks come out and warn of uh, major layoffs. Um, once the government is no longer pay, uh, able to pay uh, salaries for its employees, you know, what, what I'm getting at is there's going to be a, an incredible worsening of the financial and material living conditions of people in the foreseeable stu- uh, uh, future if if this crisis is not resolved and it does not seem that that it will be resolved. Um, so here, what what might happen if if there there's an entire loss of credibility in the in the uprising's ability to to get anything done, essentially, because the uprising continues to define itself in opposition to uh, the government, as opposed to uh, start and build uh, models of, uh, of dual power or of uh, localized uh, uh, government structures. Uh, so pretty much start being revolutionary as opposed to a, uh, a protest movement. Um, people will turn back to the parties that, that, you know, the parties and their clientelism. They're, they're, uh, you know, these parties already have the infrastructure 
uh, necessary to bring in goods from outside. Uh, some of these parties are the ones that already control uh, Lebanon's uh, borders and ports. Uh, so, so we can see um, what I would call the, the, the victory of, of a counter-revolution that will take us socially to a position that is worse than today. Um, alternatively, might through the spontaneity that we have experienced, and I, and I will emphasize that uh, this, you know, the, the competency and the capabilities in the spontaneity have exceeded anything I would have, I, I, I could have thought of. Um, we've seen uh, things being, you know, roads and tunnels being cleaned that have not been cleaned by the government for, for decades. Uh, we have seen shows of solidarity across the country that, that were previously uh, unthought of. Um, could this solidarity extend to preserve this revolution in building uh, local networks uh, that will essentially have to be uh, anti-capitalist to maintain and, and, and defend the revolution? So uh, to, to be a, a valve in which pressure, uh, financial pressure can be, can be released. Will we see the creation of uh, of local committees where uh, who pass a law that uh, you know what we're all in this together? No one will be paying rent for the next two months until we figure this out. Is that a possibility? Uh, might doctors and hospitals, um, you know, open their doors and let people in and and, and start managing their own uh, their own surpluses and, and, and build networks of international solidarity. I, I'm not sure that, that that might be, you know, I might be being too hopeful, but so far I've been surprised. Uh, so that, that, is one, that is one scenario, let's say. Uh, the second is that the, the uprising is successful. Uh, they, they take down the current government. There's a new... Uh, there's a there's a new kind of non-sectarian, uh, non-aligned uh, government, if you want to call it a technocratic government, if you want to call it a neutral government, etc., uh, that passes a new law, and um, the you know there's early elections. Um, what might happen here? There might be first a rejection of this movement altogether and a shift in street dynamics where current protesters, now that they've you know, accomplished their gains, either uh, vacate the streets and uh, what, will, what will film them up is reactionary theocratic elements uh, that are, whose main purpose is to defend their uh, theocratic ideological mission in Lebanon, especially Hezbollah, you know, which at the end of the day, no matter how much we want to, if we want to look at them in a, in a good light as, uh, uh, as the resistance of Lebanon, which they've been able to monopolize themselves as, um, you know, they remain a theocratic uh, reactionary element within the country. Um, so once they mobilize against this new, um, this new, this new government, they, they will be essentially unopposed, and 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 they have the political power and the uh, and the physical strength to derail this process of uh, 
if we want to call it Lebanon's uh, modernization or move away from sectarian uh, politics, uh, where through electoral power and elections or, or, or otherwise, they can become the main political actor within Lebanon. Um, yeah, so, so that, that is also a, a bit of a, a nightmare situation. The, the question remains, as with any revolution, uh, you need a way to exclude the, the previous parties, the previous ruling class from participating in the government to derail the process. The only way I can see that being done is by building this this local uh, momentum in, in decentralization as opposed to having this electoral centralization. And this is, again, one of the paradox of, of this uprising is the leadership has been so great about saying, oh, look, this is so decentralized geographically. This is happening everywhere. Yet the entirety of their hopes is that, well, as soon as we put together the small centralized government, everything is going to be okay. So, so it, it's completely contradictory to what they've correctly identified as a strength of the of, of this uprising. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. Well, Jade, thank you so much for being our guest today on Radio Free Humanity. Oh, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you so much. It's been very informative.
For more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast, please do go to MarxistHumanistInitiative.org where you can see all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and all those places. And we'd love for you to give us a rating there as well and share the podcast with your friends, however you do that. Um, we do always encourage comments, so please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org and leave us a comment. We would love to hear from you.